0: Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 19. Joshua, I'm sorry, Judges chapter 19 would be better. Judges Judges chapter 19. And uh, that's the seventh book in your Bible. So starting from the beginning, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, then uh, Judges. And believe it or not, we are concluding our series through the book of Judges uh, today. Uh, For some of you, you may have wished that we had slowed down a little bit more in uh, certain sections and dwelt more on it. Others of you uh, wish we hadn't labored so long in certain parts of it. But hopefully for all of us, it's been an edifying time to, to understand more about who the Lord is and understand more about who we are and understand more about salvation ultimately. And, and, and as I, I tend to do when we, we finish a book like this that we've gone through, I think it is good to pause and remember part of the reason we, we try to do our preaching that way, not that we always have to do it that way or it's wrong to do it another way, but walking through a book of the Bible is a really helpful thing in, in our sermon time because it, it's helpful for me, it forces me, to preach on some things that I would not normally go and maybe look for us to preach on. They might not be in my top 100 verses to pick or chapters to pick to preach on. So that's good for me. Make sure that we're hearing from God and not just from me. And uh, and then it's helpful for you all as a congregation because ideally then you can perhaps receive the word a little bit more fully because you all know, hey, it's not just... It's not just some soapbox that the preacher or whoever's preaching that Sunday is on. It's just the next part in God's Word for us to tackle. And we we can have that mentality because if we're in Christ, part of what we're believing is what 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 says, which is that all Scripture is God-breathed, that's coming out of the mouth of God, and it's useful, therefore, for correcting, rebuking, training, equipping in righteousness. So we believe that, and so then we want to hear, hear what that word has to say for us. So we can be encouraged, I think, as well, and be thankful, I guess would be the way to put it. When we have walked through a whole book of the Bible, we can sort of feel like, okay, I may not know everything about what the Bible teaches, but I've got to handle at least somewhat on that book. And over the years, as we walk through those, hopefully we continue to grow in our understanding of the Lord. Well, speaking of preachers wishing to avoid certain passages, today would be one of those. If you know anything about the final chapters of the book of Judges, you know, the whole thing in our culture where uh, Movies and plays and books always try to finish on a happy ending, try to, try to finish on a high note. Writer of Judges did not get that memo, did not get that memo at all, not even close. In fact, what we're uh, going to read in a minute, I, I'll have trouble even reading. I tried to find a way to, to not read some of it uh, because it, it, on the one hand, it's not any different from something that we would open the newspaper and perhaps see and be shocked by. Uh, Or or log on to our little website wherever we check the news and read those headlines and sort of be, man, that's horrible. It's not any different than that, but reading it somehow in the church context in this place and and reading it from God's word and in some way just brings it even to more stark uh, contrast for us. So you'll you'll know what I'm talking about here in a minute. Ultimately, uh, what we're going to read today, although it's a bleak, bleak picture, is going to be a reminder of the bad news of our human condition that really uh, should cause us to see the beauty of Palm Sunday. The beauty of Jesus Christ come into the world to be our righteous King and, and Savior. And you'll, you'll see what I mean as we read our verses here. Uh, let me turn first. You keep, keep uh, your eyes on... Judges 19 but let me read first Judges 17 verse 6 it says in those days there was no king in Israel for everyone did what was right in his own eyes and then let me read the other bookend for you and then we'll jump into our passage the very last verse of Judges the, the entire book verse, chapter 21 verse 25 in those days There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now jump back with me here to Judges 19, and we'll read some selected verses uh, from it. If you want to turn in your worship guide to the sermon notes section, you can as well. Judges 19, verses 1 through 3, we'll start with it. It says, In those days, sound familiar? When there was no king in Israel... A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. She went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And he had with him a servant and a couple of donkeys and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with, came with joy to meet him. Jumping down to verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from work in the field at the evening. The Levite has now collected his concubine and taken her with him. They've diverged from their path a little bit and ended up in this city of Gibeah because the city of Jerusalem at that time was overrun with those who were godless people. So they're trying to get to a a place where the people of God are in Gibeah. And it says in verse 16, And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. No one had welcomed these folks in. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, the Levite did. We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which we've come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw to feed our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace be to you. I'll care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows surrounded the house. Beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine." Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do what seems good to you. But against the man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master... Rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was the concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. He put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, took a knife, taking hold of his concubine, divided her limb by limb. And sent them throughout the territory of Israel, and all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Let's pray together. Father, this is a horrific passage. Uh, It is disturbing just to read, and yet it's part of God's word and meant to teach us something about life uh, attempted to be lived without you as our king and our savior. And how uh, horribly it will degrade for us if we seek that path. Father, be our teacher then and through this passage that's disturbing to us, magnify to us the work of Christ, our true King and our true Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tough passage. Tough passage. Sobering passage. As I read these verses, I think about the story that uh, maybe some of us read in school. The uh, Lord of the Flies, not the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Flies. Anybody remember reading that? To some of y'all? Okay, William Golding wrote this. Interesting for the authors among us. I read yesterday, this was uh, published in 1954. It sold a whopping 3,000 copies and then went out of print for about a decade before coming back into print and is now today one of the, you know, people who are listed as the top 100 uh, books to sort of read in, in English literature, I guess you would say. Story, you recall, of the Lord of the Flies is these folks that have landed, these young boys, all the adults have been uh, somehow uh, killed, but they've ended up on a deserted island. And they have to figure out how to do uh, life on their own then. And presumably, the author Golding is making a message about human nature because these boys are too young, theoretically, to have had any outside influence to bring into their minds any horrible uh, mindset. And yet, as they begin to interact and try to survive and try to relate to one another on this island, they actually become very violent, become uh, in, in great conflict with one another and can't even figure out how to manage the basic things that they need to do to survive. The picture in this chapter in Judges is not that different from the message of that book. The people of God, as we've seen, and, and uh, if you're just joining us the last couple of weeks, we've, we've seen that the judges, the, it was a time of great brokenness and lostness, but it, it gets even worse as things go on and on. The judges get kind of more misguided and the people get mis, more, more misguided. That roller coaster gets lower and lower of the people of God to where we come to our passage today. And I think the main idea of it is this, that God wants to convey Uh, For us today, it's in your worship guide that the more we abandon God's kingship in our lives, I'm talking there individually as well as collectively as a society, the greater will be our depravity, highlighting our great need for Jesus, our perfect Savior and Lord. Let me walk through these verses for us, because as I've said in other places, we're kind of removed from the Bible by time and time by geography, we live in another part of the world, and by culture. So we've got to get past a few of those hurdles today to really get all that's being said in these verses. So if you want to follow along again in your worship guide, the first thing we see in this passage right at the beginning, verse 1, it says that there, it uh, talks about there being no king in Israel, and it says there was a certain Levite, a certain Levite. Well, who were the Levites. The Levites were kind of the ministers, if you will. The priests came from among their group, and they were in charge of what we'd call the church stuff, the church services, getting together to offer the sacrifices and so forth. This was the job of the Levites. Now, all the people of God were supposed to be set apart to God and be living for him. But certainly one would expect at least the Levites would do that, right? And yet we see in the very first verse, something's wrong. Something's not just wrong in Gibeah, where we'll get to in a few minutes. Something's wrong because this Levite has taken to himself, it says a concubine. Now, what's a concubine? That's not a word we use often in our society. Well, the biblical plan laid out back in Genesis was, you know, one man with one woman, and Jesus reaffirms that, and the apostle Paul does in the New Testament. Uh, We see certainly throughout the Old Testament that the people of God opt to to do what we would call polygamy. A lot of times the kings have multiple wives and so forth. That was not God's design, but that's something that they they did in practice. This this was a level removed even from that. Uh, A concubine was essentially a servant who was uh, then somehow romantically uh, aligned with the master of the house, if you will, a sort of mistress who was a servant. And this helps us kind of get what's happening in this passage, because this particular concubine she's decided to kind of return the favor she's been not treated well to be in this place in society and in relationship to this Levite master, and so she said i'll see i'm going to go i'm gonna go hang out with somebody else." Well, word has gotten out that she did that, and that's a no no in this society, and so she runs to her father's house. And we, we can see already, even before we get to those horrific verses I read at the end, that something about the power relationship between men and women and the fall there is, is already edging into this society. There's a brokenness there where the understanding of equality before God is, has been lost. The society has lost a vision for that. And the treatment of men towards women is going to be something that we see that's uh, horrifically displayed in a multiple ways in these verses, but at this point we already what we see already is that this guy, Levite, is treating this woman essentially like his property for his pleasure she goes and runs away to her father's house now, uh, we didn't read all the verses in between just to save some time, but essentially the, he gets to the father's house, the Levite does, to go and retrieve her, and the father kind of wines and dines him. Now, we, we don't understand in our mind. It doesn't tell us why this father is nearby and he's allowed his daughter to even be in this situation. We don't have an answer to that, but that's the situation. And the, uh, the, the gentleman, the Levite, shows up, and, and the father wines and dines him because of what? The concubine's potentially facing some severe punishment for what she's done. Even though it's, it, the whole thing's wrong in, in, in our understanding, uh, he, she's still facing consequences. So he, he you know does the best he can to kind of win over the Levite gentleman, keeps him there for a couple of days. Finally, they decide to head on their way. That would be kind of crazy enough for us to look at. As they go on their way, though... They travel by Jerusalem. And at the time, Jerusalem is not the place that we think of it as maybe uh, today or or even in the time of Christ, where it sort of represents a holy city. At this time, it represents to to them a place of uh, depravity and lostness. So they say, we're not going to go there. The concubine and his servant and the Levite, as we make our way back home and try to reconcile, we're going to go off to Gibeah. This is where the people of God should be. A good place to hang out. Well, what happens in Gibeah? That's where we kind of picked up. What's the situation in Gibeah? The, the, the folks, uh, the, the concubine, the Levite, arrived there. Their uh, GPS on their phone is not working, apparently. They're not getting data coverage in, in that region of, uh, of Israel. And, and so they, they can't log on and get some, some hotels.com or some Priceline. So they're stuck in, this, in the town square. And, you know, this would be a little, this one would be a little foreign to us, except for what happened in our own city about two months ago. Everybody remember Snowmageddon, right? The snowstorm that came and shut down all of Birmingham. Well, Snowmageddon taught us a few things, didn't it? I was visiting with somebody from our church yesterday morning having some coffee, and he was telling me the story that somehow I hadn't heard yet about him with his four-wheel drive truck and trying to make his way across another part of town, and he lives back over here in this part of town, and he ended up wrecking his vehicle, and there was no, nothing to be done about it. And nearby, a gentleman came out of his house, and at first the guy was just, hey, anybody want to get some hot chocolate? You come on in here, your car's wrecked. Let's get some hot chocolate. And then more cars wrecked along the street. And before he knew it, this, this gentleman that was staying with seven perfect strangers in the house of some other guy that he'd never met. Maybe some of you all uh, had that experience along those lines, this idea of hospitality. In the ancient world, it was a high virtue because you never knew when you might be traveling somewhere and get stuck. And you would want somebody to bring you in and, you know, vice versa, whatever the situation was now. You notice this uh, guy, the Levite, says, hey, we got everything covered. We got food for our animals. We got bread. We got wine. We're not going to be a burden to anybody. And so we see again, even before we get to the last verses that we read, something's wrong in Gibeah. Something's wrong that people aren't doing the basic, decent things to love God and love neighbor. They're, They're not doing that. So it's probably no huge surprise then that we see things getting even worse. As these men come, and you read it correctly if you understood that they had an interest in violent relations with the Levite, that's what it means when it says, know him, this group of men from Gibeah coming. And that's horrific to think about. But it's interesting to look at what then happens with the Levite. And with the gentleman he's staying with and hard to almost gauge which thing seems more broken or messed up, the gang of people knocking on the door or the men who decide that instead of defending and protecting the women that are in their care, send them out. Now, the passage, I don't know why it it decides to be so graphic at the end, It, it sort of graciously is not graphic about what happens to this poor woman. But it tells us plenty about the Levite if you read between the lines just a little bit. Did you notice what he did while all this was happening to his concubine? This woman that presumably he not only sort of possessed, but also loved, cared for in some kind of way. He goes to sleep. He gets a rest. Wakes up the next morning, it says. And sort of as he's walking out of the door, says, hey, get on up. Let's get going. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling, the, the brokenness that we're seeing here. He takes her with him, and then I won't even talk again about what he does to sort of send a, what we might call an all points, bulletin that's uh, disgusting and grotesque out to all of Israel. And why is he doing that? We don't have time to read the next chapter, chapter 20. He's doing it to tell everybody else around him, look, this horrible thing that has happened to me and my concubine, Come, rest of you tribes, and let's attack these people that have done and allowed this horrible thing to happen. What do we get from all of this? What do we learn? Well, a couple of application points for us, and we won't take too much more time this morning. The first one, does this passage in some way teach about the brokenness of sort of sexuality in a fallen world? Absolutely. You know, could you look at this and say, man, there's something wrong with this gang of people coming to get this guy? Sure. Uh, We would probably want to look at other passages in Scripture to talk, just like we'd look elsewhere to find passages about uh, the sin of fornication, of being involved uh, in sexual relations outside of marriage, adultery, the person who's married pursuing those outside of their marriage relationship. Same thing with homosexuality. And, and what the scriptures teach about that, we'd want to look at Romans chapter one and First Corinthians chapter six to to see where it speaks about the sin of of that uh, homosexual behavior. Uh, but that's not what's going on here. This is violent behavior uh, of that sort of nature. So our culture today would agree, hey, this is this is wrong. This is broken. But there's something there that's that's awry so we can. See that, that there's a lostness to this culture because of that? Do we, uh, do we see as well, number two, that, that this is a society that has clearly, clearly lost their bearings as far as what it says in Genesis 1.26, that God created uh, male and female in God's image, that both men and women are marked with God's image and therefore have incredibly high status. And uh, although our culture has sort of swung the pendulum over, In an effort, in a good effort to defend the equality of women to say that men and women are kind of exactly identical in their roles. Uh, We would say uh, the scriptures teach in the church and in the home, there are those differing uh, roles for men and women. But we would affirm the full equality that this society's lost that completely. Right. It's gone. They, They there's a dominance of of men and a mistreatment of of women. That's horrific. That's a marker of the depravity here. Does the passage also, this one's a little trickier to see, does the passage also teach how blinded we can become even in midst of a depraved culture to our own brokenness? Look at this Levite. What does he do? He he does everything wrong, pretty much. It's wrong from the beginning. And, And yet at the end, he wants to. He's so enraged that he wants to send this message and get everybody to come on his side and go fight against these people. If you read chapter 20, you see he purposefully doesn't tell the rest of the tribes that he failed to defend this woman, that he sent her out, that the whole reason she ended up being in that situation was because he let it happen. It's another sign of brokenness of our failure that we have to remove the log from our own eye before we remove the speck from our brothers, right? We can look around at a depraved culture and say, well, at least we're just, you know, the the culture's down here, and as long as I'm up, just right up an inch or two above that, I'll feel pretty good about myself. I'll even get a sort of self-righteousness and, you know, get everybody else on my side. The Levite's way off track in his assessment of himself. All of this screams to us that there's something broken, there's something wrong, In Israel, just like today, there's something broken and something wrong in our world and in our culture. And all of that points to what really is a a good ending, at least to our sermon time today, as we think about Palm Sunday. And that is this question. Does this passage, by identifying all of those forms of brokenness, point us to the need for a righteous, perfect, loving, gracious Holy Savior and King who would come and rescue us? Absolutely. Did you notice those verses I read at the beginning? There was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. The last verse of Judges, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. The passage declares that we need a king. And and you read the verses uh, earlier with me today. Look back in your worship guide at our, our call to worship. What a wonderful thing that we've got such a savior that's come to rescue us in our brokenness and uh, to rescue broken situations like the one we just read about on page three of your worship guide. Mark 11 verses 10 to 9 to 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Tim Keller notes in one of his studies, and I'll conclude with this. What kind of savior and king it is that we need and that we have. Number one, it's one who comes on his own initiative without people even seeking him. Remember earlier in Judges, people were at least recognizing, oh man, something's wrong. I need to cry out to God, come help me, come save me. Here at the end, there's none of that at all. It's just sheer lostness, sheer brokenness. Jesus comes on into Jerusalem riding on that donkey. He's coming in. It's His initiative. He's going to save. He's going to be king. Second thing we see is that we have in Jesus one who can accomplish all that we need. All that's needed for us to to be saved even when we don't contribute anything to that. Third thing we see with Jesus is that we have one who comes through weakness rather than obvious strength. We saw that, right? Throughout a lot of the judges. Ehud, the left-handed. Deborah's unlikely in the fact that she was a woman to be a judge, to be a military leader at the time. Uh, Samson, with all of his (laughs) weakness and brokenness, we saw that, and yet God used those folks. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Not that he had any sinful weakness, but he comes offering himself up, allowing his own life to be taken. And fourthly, we have in Jesus one who can transform us on the inside, not just tell us what to do. The Israelites in Judges 19 and 20, they knew what to do. They had the commandments of God. They knew these things were not the way it should be. They didn't need more information. They needed a radical transformation just as we do and just as Christ provides for us. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you for these verses today. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen and equip us uh, through them, even the very disturbing uh, parts of of these verses. Lord, to uh, be mindful of how we should pray for ourselves and how we should pray for our society. Oh, Lord, that we would not turn away from you, that we would recognize you as king and savior, Lord, that you would indeed transform us so that we might live in ways of righteousness and goodness, loving you and loving our neighbor and not in horrific ways of selfishness, of uh, the evil that we see identified in these verses. Uh, Lord, these things are vying even in our own culture. They're vying in our own hearts. And so we pray that you would do a work of redemption. Oh, Lord Jesus, that you would be our king and Savior in all things. And we pray this in Your name. Amen.